This Spectator podcast is brought to you in association with Merian Global Investors, proud sponsors of Shakespeare's Globe, together committed to providing the space to perform. For a chance to win one of 50 pairs of prize tickets to the Globe's summer season, visit merianattheglobe.com. Competition terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to The Spectator podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman. It's another crazy week in Westminster and the question on everyone's mind is what happens next. I talk to three people in the know. Plus, should councils turf out the social housing tenants whose circumstances improve? So first up, what happens now with Brexit? James Forsyth writes in this week's cover article that one of three things must happen by March 29th, yet none of the possible options look likely. Joining me to discuss this is Katie Balls, our deputy political editor, left-wing journalist Paul Mason and Henry Newman, director of Open Europe. So Katie, we've seen this week the rejection of Theresa May's deal in the Meaningful Vote. What are the different options that are now being discussed? Well, in theory, there's lots of options. But when you start to look at the numbers, the options aren't actually that wide ranging. Because Theresa May suffered such a historic defeat, losing by over 200 votes, it's very hard to argue that her Brexit deal has legs, that it has a way forward. And now I think what has probably changed, and, and James documents this in his piece, is that we are seeing an increased effort from those in Parliament who want to either stop Brexit completely or take the UK to one of the softest forms of Brexit possible. So when you look at those options, one option which is being pushed is to stay in a permanent customs union. That is something which, when Theresa May talks about cross-party talks, people think that's how she might be able to get those 116, 117 votes she needs. But in order to do that, that would be very disruptive to the Conservative Party. Now, another option is this Nick Bowles plan, which is to give the Commons the power and perhaps then give that to the Liaison Committee, which has 36 select committee chairs on it. It's not a flawless plan, given that the Liaison Committee, I think, have now decided after not being informed in advance that they're not actually pro that. But it is an example of how the way Parliament works could change. You could make it so... They want to basically make it so backbenchers can decide what business is going to go ahead. And as Nikki da Costa writes in The Spectator, that would be very damaging for a government with no majority. And then the other way they could potentially do this is looking, of course, to a second referendum. And you're seeing increased efforts, particularly on those on the Labour side, not the front bench. This week we had, I think, 71 Labour MPs sign uh, saying they want this. But that number is still far short of the number you'd need to actually have a majority of MPs vote saying they wanted a second referendum. So there is still no clarity on what Parliament wants. There has been a proposal from, I think it was the Brexit Delivery Group, that there could be an options bill of some kind. And there were the Cabinet suggestions along the same lines of indicative votes. Is there any chance that that might happen? There is a chance of indicative votes and there are some actually around Theresa May who think this could help her because we keep hearing about Norway, that's an option uh, proposed by figures like Nick Bowles Uh, we keep hearing about and they think there's actually not the numbers for that so if you were to do these indicative votes and we could get to that, it would really flush out the level of support for each option. I think if you look at those in Cabinet, where they are probably at when it comes to there are some who are very opposed to a permanent customs union, but I think there are a number of cabinet ministers, people like Amber Rudd, Greg Clark, Philip Hammond, who see Theresa May's defeat 
this week as a path to a softer Brexit and the one that they think is the easiest to get to is a permanent customs union. And those cabinet ministers and other Tories are saying that Theresa May needs to reach out to Labour. Paul Mason, how willing is the Labour front bench to reach back? Well, I think it's shown willing to say, know that you've lost your deal, let's explore what deals are possible inside this parliament. And the reason it's doing that is, as you know, left sort of Europhile members of Labour often accuse Corbyn of being a lexiteer. It isn't that. It's because, um, first of all, there are a number of shadow cabinet members, there are a number of front benchers, there are a number, a large number of PLP members who just don't relish all the other options, which are a second referendum where we vote Remain. And I understand why, because, you know, people come into politics to save their local maternity ward, not to be told that they're a traitor to the country by by someone doxing them and, and following them around with a megaphone. So, uh, you know... Uh, Funny that. <laughs> yeah. So, so, however, I fear that, see, for me, the moral authority of the 2016 referendum evaporated on Monday night when... Parliament voted down Theresa May's deal. I am prepared, as a pro-Remain, pro-second referendum person, to go through such motions as need to be gone through, and many of the Labour backbenchers are doing this. And they include what you just said. You know, They include the Norway option, they include can we get a customs union and build up from it, you know, from that basis. Um, and if not, with our, can we just extend, extend Article 50 and give ourselves all a breathing space? If there is no, see, because of course there has to be, you know, 50% plus one in Parliament for any of those things to happen, even if you get the procedural changes, if none of these are possible in the Parliament that we have, for me, everything moves towards a change of Parliament. It's not even a change of government. You have to have a means of getting a different set of MPs in there. And that's why, that's the logic behind Corbyn's repeated insistence. This is heading towards an election. Katie, do you think this is ultimately heading towards an election? I think there is an increased chance of an election and it's that talk is not just coming from the Labour side. I've been really struck this week and these people were part saying it with dread but there are definitely some cabinet ministers, there are some people who work for cabinet ministers who are saying they... They don't think it's going to happen next week, but they think the path we are currently on is heading to an early election. And that's not even necessarily because Theresa May is going to lose a confidence vote. It's because things might break down to such a point that you just don't have a functioning parliament. I know people say parliament right now is not really functioning, but it is on. It's in a loose sense. And I think if you, for example, have the Nick Bowles plan go through and the backbenchers can dictate business, that would really bring this government to a halt in a way that it hasn't yet so that was one way you might get there also I mean Theresa May has promised now because of the size of her defeat to have these cross-party talks yet we are hearing that she is sticking to her red lines on the customs union on freedom of movement on all these things which mean that these conversations are going to be very short conversations at this rate unless she's willing to give something I don't see what movement there is and if she does move on a customs union we are that is going to fracture the Conservative Party and really push it. And that could lead to an early election in itself. Cool. And as James Forsyth points out in The Spectator this week, there aren't enough Labour rebels who would say, look, for an easy life, and I'm not so enamoured of Europe anyway, I go with what you've done, uh, Theresa May. 
that they would offset the number of Tories who would revolt against it. I mean, there might be. All, river, you know, all rivers have to find a course. You know, water has to find a course. And I've been thinking that Norway is the course that the Commons will find, but it doesn't have an organisational means of finding it. So, you know, if the Nick Bowles plan goes through, even though I'm, you know, uh, you know very st- staunch, you know, critical Remainer, I wouldn't, you know, and many of people like me have said this, you know, people in my circles have said, we won't, we won't slit our wrists, you know, if, 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 they, if, if we get a Norway-style deal. It's good news. <laughs> no, but, you know, let's not talk about wrist slitting. We want to be civilised. But there's lots of people who would be pretty fed up on the Tory side if the Norway thing did happen. And so I think that there is goodwill, actually, you know, you can look at MPs and, and they, they realise one thing, you know, that mob outside, both mobs, two mobs, you know, they don't like the situation. They can't actually step outside. Fair enough. That, you know, I went to the People's Vote March. You're talking about the, the mob outside Parliament, the, the yeah, crowds well, of protesters. Yeah, the crowd and of protesters. And, and let, the mood is not very nice, really, to, among either side. You know, people like me get heckled when I speak to a big meeting of People's Vote people because I'm not People's Votish enough. And, of course... Some horrific things are on the placards. And, but, the, but the point is, the MPs know that they are li- feeling a, bit, a little bit detached from civil society. That's a very dangerous situation to be in, and it's making them huddle together and talk to each other. So I would imagine that the goodwill is there, but, but somebody has to make a move in a negotiation. And why Corbyn said, look, put, you know, when you say uh, no to no deal, you're, that's an implicit extension of Article 50, because it means if you get to the 29th of March, there's no deal, you're going to extend Article 50. It's the same thing. And I think Jeremy's just basically saying, you know, we're not going to go into a negotiation where there's a ticking clock, because every trade union leader that's ever, you know, trained another trade union, you know, kind of newbie, tells them, do not go into negotiations with a ticking clock. Now, Katie, you've written before in The Spectator about how MPs have forgotten to talk to one another because they're so busy sending each other messages, often in emoji form, in WhatsApp groups. Are they getting better at negotiating with each other or are we still seeing the prospect of splits, not just in the Tory party, actually, but also in the Labour party? I think it depends on what level. What's interesting is I think that away from the leaderships, you are having more backbench MPs speak to MPs from different parties. I think there are Conservative MPs who view themselves as pragmatic on Brexit, reaching out to Labour MPs who view themselves as pragmatic on Brexit. But I still think if you look at where the various factions are, it is very divided and they're not talking to each other. And actually, the Brexiteers are doubling down again. So it's quite struck that, obviously, when you have people with such different intentions going into the same voting booth. So you want to have people who want no deal. People have something called Canada plus, 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 if the EU will give it to them. And then you have people who want a second referendum. They want Norway. Perhaps they just want a permanent customs union and be more like Turkey. They can't all get what they want from that. And in the days that have followed that vote, the Brexiters definitely sound resigned. They think that Brexit is being taken away from them. But they're still not saying oh, maybe now I would vote for Theresa May's deal if she were to bring it back. They are saying things like, the Remain Conservatives now need to get behind no deal. And I think that does tell you that these sides are not talking to each other because any suggestion that 
you know, you're going to get someone perhaps even like Nick Bowles or George Freeman to back a no-deal Brexit means that you're not having the right conversation. Yes, I thought one of the, the interesting features of some of those rather cheesy and slightly grim selfies that MPs were taking in the voting lobbies was that there were other MPs from different factions in the background who looked really annoyed to be caught in that particular oh. factional selfie. Henry Newman, how realistic do you think a prospect of a Tory split is now? I mean, it's certainly a possibility. And of course, the Tory party's continue to be divided over Europe for now several decades. Uh, so at one level, it's nothing particularly new. But, but a th- serious but split. I think, I think what, what we saw, on, uh, what we saw uh, yesterday on the, the confidence motion, actually I was sitting in the chamber for Michael Gove's wind-up speech, and it was extraordinary. The whole Tory benches were reminded about why they were Conservatives and that there was a bigger issue to fight. And I think he brilliantly actually turned the, uh, the attack onto Labour and used the issue of national security, of course, an issue where there's a gulf between the front bench and the back benches to open that up. But on, but on overall Brexit policy, I think the question now is, are MPs looking for ladders to climb down on the Tory backbenches or are they looking for crosses to martyrise themselves on? And there's a divide. I think some of the MPs have got eyes on a future prize, and that's the leadership. Of course, the Prime Minister herself fired the gun on the race to success her, uh, to succeed her in, in, uh, the com- when she faced a personal confidence vote last month. But there are also some MPs who I think are willing to compromise. They wanted to register their disapproval of the deal, and they did that very emphatically. But they may actually now be looking for a, a different way through. And of course, some of the opposition to her deal is not really based, let's be really honest, on the substance of the policy. There are personal objections to her as a prime minister, and there are political reasons why people oppose that. So actually, can you, can you find a way to square off some of those political things? Of course, the prime minister has one card she can play. It's a very big card. But she may have to play it. And this is something that James has, James Forsyth has written about uh, in this magazine, which is that she may have to essentially offer to stand down after the end of Article 50. And that could be a trigger, which I've heard from many Eurosceptic critics of the deal, that if they got that combined with something on the backstop, they might come round to it. Paul, what about the left? Do you think they would find that appealing? <laughs> Aside from an election. A bunch of rich people deciding prospect. who's going to be prime minister again. Yeah, not, not really. Um, sure what, the MPs are particularly rich. But. No, but you know what I mean. Different, different factions really. of, the, of the, what we would see as the corporate elite. Your, your time is up. You've had, you know, you've had your, your time in the sun. The Brexit referendum gave you a perfect opportunity to change and reset this, you know, the, the global position of this country, and you failed to do it, I would say, to them. And and it is time for, for, for if you can't do the thing that you were elected to do, you've got to ask yourself, what are we in? No, I thought, I, I take your point about Gove. Gove's wind-up speech, you know, there are bigger issues to conservatism. And likewise, there are bigger issues for, 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 for Labour and the left. And you saw Jeremy Corbyn's uh, party political broadcast yesterday, his Hastings speech on Thursday, uh, the day we're recording this, are all focused, trying to say to people, there are issues beyond Brexit. There is nobody more than Corbyn who wants to go beyond Brexit. But the, the, the core of the party and the core of the party's voters feel very strongly about it. And so what you're seeing him do is go to the very limits of trying to let this parliament solve Brexit. But in the end, if it can't, there'll be a, an election. And, and then there'll be a battle royal inside the Labour Party to commit it to a Remain situation. Now, Henry, you mentioned the prospect of Theresa May promising to go after Article 50. Is there a chance that she could extend Article 50? Is there a chance that the EU is amenable to that. There was certainly a hint at Prime Minister's questions this week. Right. I should say from the outside, I don't think the Prime Minister would be particularly keen to go at uh, the end of Article 50. I think she'll have her fingernails stuck firmly in the wall. Would but, she ever be keen to go? I don't think Prime Ministers very often are. But of course, <laughs> uh, as we know from Enoch Powell, you can either, all political careers end in failure unless you leave first. And perhaps 
uh, well, we can reflect on that a bit. But the, I don't know, I think extending Article 50, the EU has previously been very clear that you can only extend Article 50 to have a general election, to have a referendum or for, for a sort of technical period leading up to ratification. And they, they, I think they would be most likely to offer us that if we had already passed the meaningful vote. And therefore, they'd allow us a few weeks to complete the withdrawal agreement bill. Uh, we heard Herman von Rampuy, who was previously present, uh, saying that extension beyond July was not possible. And that's, of course, because there are European elections in May. Uh, it's in the treaty that you have to have a certain number of MEPs. Uh, therefore, and if, if Britain was taking part in those elections, they wouldn't be electing additional members in, say, France, Germany, Italy, Spain. And it gets very, very messy and very complicated. So, the, yes, there's some ex- exceptions that Britain's in a bind. They want to help Britain out. But would they give us an indefinite, renega- uh, indefinite period of extension just to have another go at the backstop? No. Katie, how likely is a no-deal Brexit? It's impossible to rule out. A lot of people this week have said, oh, no deal isn't going to happen now. That The problem for those who want to avoid no deal is the default, if we can't agree on anything else, is to leave at the end of March. And unless, and that's in WTO terms, so unless the Commons can come to some kind of consensus, that is what happens. And there are some Brexiteers who were quite happy with the result because of Theresa May's you know, loss, because they think, well, if you just let all the various factions battle it out and it's funny because you know the the Norway group and the second referendum group loathe each other so that you just leave them to fight then the clock will tick and actually you do leave and I don't think that is Theresa May's personal plan because she's spoken about how she doesn't want to run the clock down but there are definitely some who I think wouldn't mind that but when you go to uh, a no deal scenario I think because there is such a force, there are such numbers that don't want it to happen. You do feel that they will eventually agree on something, though I think they can all agree perhaps. I think there's probably a majority to extend Article 50, but as Henry points out, you would have to say to the EU what the point of that is, rather than just more procrastination, which Theresa May is just on very the, good at. I, think, I, mean, I, was, I was really struck uh, listening to the debate in the last few days in the Commons by the number of uh, Remain-minded MPs on both sides, actually, Dominic Grieve, Ben Bradshaw, very strongly attacking the idea of a Norway plus uh, Brexit, which I think was was it shows a particular movement within uh, within po- politics. But also, of course, they're not totally wrong because Plan B, uh, which is what obviously the Norway plus advocates call it, is premised on accepting the whole of Plan A. Their plan is to accept all the binding bits of uh, the current deal, the withdrawal agreement, in its entirety, including the backstop, and then just tweak the political declaration, the non-binding bit. So it's not really a plan B, it's a plan A with a bow on it. Yeah, and that's why the Labour front benches just can't be and will not be pro-Norway. I do think, though, as we hit the kind of gro- the parachute jump, last 10 metre ground rush, that, which is what we're in, that... The, the Norway is the parachute open. At it is stage? open. It is open. What's below us? A trampoline. <laughs> nice, lovely, you know, uh, green sward. Uh, but of called an election. Uh, but as as we as we uh, as we approach it, I do think the Norway thing is is the sort of default thing, and and the fact that so many people inside Labour inside the Labour backbench. And remember, this attack on it that has been coordinated from Millbank Tower by the People's Vote campaign from the very moment it became a goer 
That's they definitely start, true. But there are also problems with it. It's not a simple off-the-shelf model. So my yeah, concern true, would be that true. if we went for Norway Plus, so let's say let's say they get their way, that the, you add Norway to the political declaration, take out the rest. If mm-hmm. you go to that, I think you set up the same negotiation cliff edges that you'd have anyway. You do, but you get Brexit. And, and at that point, the beauty of it for a lot of the Labour MPs who support Norway, uh, some of whom are not out yet, is that it allows them to go to the constituency and say, you may not like the Brexit we did, Theresa May screwed it up the Brexit you wanted, mm. but we've delivered something called Brexit. And you may say it's in name only, but I'm afraid there it is. And, and I think that that's what makes me... I, my money would be... Norway's going to kind of surge up the charts like one of these late-breaking you know, chart toppers, and then it's going to nearly get to number one and then kind of surge down. And then you've got to just ask, if, if the talks in Downing Street are going nowhere and Norway's getting nowhere, really then that's why, you know, Katie said, that's why you're starting to get people saying, and I know the party machines, you know, Labour's party machine is certainly having a look at candidates, it's certainly having a look at money, and I would be very surprised if the Tories weren't, because that's what you might end up with. And Henry, one of the big parliamentary moments of this week has been the speech that Michael Gove gave, winding up the no-confidence vote on Wednesday night, and you can hear a bit of it now. And we see that when Spanish rail firms like Talgo shortlist six destinations for investment for new rolling stock, all six in the United Kingdom. When Boeing opened a new factory in Sheffield to create jobs for British workers. When Chanel moved from France to London in order to establish a new corporate headquarters. And when Starbucks, Starbucks moved from Amsterdam to London. In order, to, in order to ensure more investment and jobs. The opposition should wake up and smell the coffee. And all of this, all of this, in the words of the BBC, despite Brexit. Do you think this was a leadership bid, Henry? Let me try that one. Um, it, 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 I was involved in one leadership campaign. I never really want to be involved in another one. Um, <laughs> Having fallen out with all my friends during the referendum and then fell out with some more during that. that anyway, uh, so probably not. No, I think I think what it showed, though, is that Michael is an extraordinary parliamentary performer and was able to think on his feet and able, as I said previously, to turn the debate against uh, many people, uh, sorry, to divide up the opening chasm between the Labour front bench and their back benches on national security. And I think what we actually saw last night in that vote was that the DUP is saying that it was they 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 saved the government's day. That's true technically. But I think actually what it also shows is that you'd probably be able to win a confidence vote even without the DUP. Because actually you'd have certain Labour MPs who I'm not sure if it really came down to it, thinking that this is a question of potentially making Jeremy Corbyn prime minister, whether they would ultimately go through the division lobby to bring down the government. I think probably not. So it was, I think it did do actually quite a lot to change the balance of politics. So Gove's uh, developed this technique of Clarence Darrow style, walking around in front of the mace. I don't know if you've noticed this. It's the first time I've ever seen a, a, a front bench spokesperson start walking around. I think I think the, the ultimate service that uh, that the speaker could do would be to put two chalk marks down on the floor, delimiting where 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 front bench spokespeople can can walk around. I think Michael can do exactly the same thing sitting down. But the, no, <laughs> Katie, do you think that Theresa May might be tempted to put chalk marks around people like Michael Gove to stop them from overreaching? To be honest, I think she owes Michael Gove a deep gratitude for the fact that he is still in her cabinet to the point that 
there are obviously leadership talk around so many people so many people right now and she can't end that because she herself has said that she will probably go um you know <laughs> sometime in the next few years we'll believe when we see Century. it but that has meant that it's just hyping up but it's people like Sajid Javid that I think number 10 are suspicious of Michael Gove is perhaps the one of the most well-known Leave campaigners who still supports Theresa May. So I think he can get away with things in a way that others can't. Thank you, Katie, Paul and Henry. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I present the weekly books podcast at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there, from Charlotte Rampling to Daniel Dennett, all the way past to Michael Morpurgo. I very much hope you'll give us a try. Just search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store. And next, what is the purpose of social housing? With a short supply of properties and a waiting list of over a million families, should better off tenants vacate their properties to make way for the needier? Mark Piggott lives in a council-owned five-bed house with his wife and two children and writes in this week's magazine that social housing shouldn't turf out the better off. So, do we have the wrong idea of what council houses are for? Mark joins me now, together with Luke Doonan, social housing expert. So Mark, tell us about your house and how you came to live there. Well, it's a lovely house. It's owned by Peabody Trust. It's five bedrooms and I live there with my wife and two children. Uh, my daughter's 14, my son's 12. We had to swap our way up when I entered social housing nearly 30 years ago. I was in a bed sitting in Clerkenwell. Then I met my wife and married and all the normal things. And for a long time we lived in a two-bedroom place, which was too small. So we swapped and swapped again. And because we didn't have much choice, we ended up in Finsbury Park, which we weren't too happy about the kids growing up there. So when a, an offer came up of a five-bedroom house near our kids' schools, we, we jumped at the chance, mainly because my mum was supposed to be living with us as well because she's got a few sort of health issues. But then it, in, in the end, she didn't move in. So it's, we're sort of stuck in this large house and we think it is too big for us, really. And you write in your piece about your pride about being in social housing and how you think that a lot of people in policy and in journalism actually don't understand that. Yeah, I do. I, I think it's best social housing can give people a sort of stability and security. It certainly did in my case. Before I entered social housing, I, I spent years in sort of condemned houses and sort of bed sits and sort of sleeping on sofas, not really sleeping rough, but the next thing up. And as soon as I had security of tenure, it just enabled me to sort of concentrate on sort of my career and get a degree and sort of have a stable family, which was something I'd always wanted. This is a difficult question, but do you think you need a social home anymore? I think I probably do. If you're looking at in terms of income, as a freelance writer, I don't earn a fortune. And, and my kids are in school in North London, so I probably couldn't afford to stay around there on the, on the sort of rents that people are charging. What's your rent? You um, well, our rent is 650 a month for a five-bedroom house, which is obviously astonishing. Every listener's eyes are popping know, out at the moment. I, I can feel the hate so pouring out. Luke, what do you make of Mark's situation? I think, I mean, in Mark's article, I pretty much agree with, with everything he said, to be honest. I think that... Are you relieved? Yeah, I, I, I think we have neglected... As a, as a government, as the UK, we have neglected social housing for around 40 years. And I think Mark is, is right. The reason I'm so passionate about this is I have a massive problem with the way we now look at people in social housing. We used to look at people in social housing and it would be inspirational and aspirational to live in social housing. And now I feel like we're treating people like second-class citizens. I can't quite put my finger 
on what's happened. And I think Mark's case would be completely acceptable. You're always going to get the haters out there. If we had replaced under the right to buy one for one or two for one and we had enough social housing. So it's a case actually of there being a a terrible shortage, not just of the number of social homes, but of the number of social homes that are big enough for families as well, because there's a horrendous overcrowding problem in social housing. And therefore, the debate becomes about who is in crisis and needs it the most. Absolutely. To give you an example, in 1980, 42% of the UK population lived in social housing. And today it's less than 7%. Now, again, my massive worry and my passion is social housing, is that all the people that are not getting social housing are just pushed into private temporary often accommodation which is costing us the taxpayer on average three or four times what a normal council house or flat would cost. Mark do you find that you're stigmatised as a result of living in social housing or is the stigma slightly different in that you have people who resent the fact that you are only paying £650 a month for for a family home? I think there's a bit of birth. I think it, because I'm a journalist, I tend to mix with people who probably earn their own homes and sort of went a traditional route of having a career and then sort of uh, putting a mortgage down. And I think they just sort of find me, my circumstances sort of different because I, I'm not from quite the same background. But with younger people who are paying, you know, two, three, four times as much rent as I am, they're, they're obviously quite envious and they just want to know why this is the case and I, I suppose I struggle to answer because uh, I don't think it's fair either. I think uh, you know Luke touched on the number of council houses that have been sold off which uh, obviously that money wasn't used to build new houses which has been disastrous. And Mark mentioned the affordable rent policy that was introduced by the coalition government and which continues today in his piece. Luke, has that been a solution to the supply problem? It's certainly not a solution in terms of affordability. No, I, I don't think it has. I mean, what, I, what I'd like to see is the government taking responsibility for social housing. For, it isn't at the moment. <laughs> no, I mean, there are so, so many councils I've worked alongside and looked at so many councils across the UK and, and specifically in London. And what we need to do is take what I'd, I wouldn't even call it social housing, council housing back. The government should be building it and the government should be looking after it and supplying it to people that genuinely need it. And in any class, in any society, in any country, we're always going to need it. But councils are now going to be able to borrow in order to build new social or new new local authority housing, depending yeah. on how you describe the rent model. My problem with that is affordable on average is 80% of market Mm. value. Mm. So private landlords are actually setting the fee. And I think we need to go back and take... It's really important because I think we are going to see a national crisis when it comes to homelessness, which we're already seeing, mental health issues, the massive housing bill for temporary accommodation. The government has to build council housing and we need to take it out of the hands of private developers who are just profiting with all these regeneration schemes. Have you seen a change in the way that the community around you is made up, Mark? Yeah, I think I'm quite lucky to live in a a mixed street. So there are some sort of council tenants, some housing associations, some rent. It seems to be people are either quite wealthy or or right right at the bottom. So there are people like us who are sort of now earning sort sort of moderate salary and then people sort of immediately opposite who are on probably benefits and and don't really sort of... Well, I mean, not everyone on benefits... uh, neglects their house but in our area that seems to be the case sometimes. Luke what do you make of the recent criticism of Kate Ossimore and going back there was Bob Crow who had a council house that that every so often there's a high profile figure on the left generally Mm. who is still in a council house 
who people say doesn't deserve to be there? I think morally people who don't need social housing should not have social housing. I so don't... they should take it upon themselves to leave, even if they have a lifetime tenancy? I know many people who have, but obviously we don't hear those stories. We just hear the negative stories. But on the other side of this, you know, we have to be fair. I don't think we can blame people who are not doing anything that's illegal because mm. the system has allowed this to happen. To give you a quick example, it only became illegal to sublet your council property in October 2013. So until then... We had hundreds of thousands of flats on Airbnb charging four or five times, you know, what the actual rent was. And there was there was nothing that anyone could do. So, again, you know, talking about this 40 year years of neglect, I feel like the, the whole social housing sector has been neglected in pretty much every way across the board. Mark, do you think there's anyone in politics at the moment who really gets social housing? Well, I, th- I suppose you could say Kate Osmer does or did <laughs> until she lost her job. I mean, she's a bit of an unusual case. I mean, you know, you, you could argue that our politicians don't really... Uh, she's still in her council house, isn't she? She's still in her council house, but she, she's not in the same... She's not on the front bench. No. I mean, you could argue, we're always saying that politicians don't understand the, the real world, whatever that is. You could say that if we allow politicians to sort of stay in council housing, then uh, they might have a better idea. I also think it's quite difficult to sort of put an upper limit on, say, on salaries as to who should keep their tenancy because I, th- I just think the sort of the admin involved would probably outweigh any sort of positives in it. And do you hear anything from either of the main parties on social housing that you think, ah, oh, finally things are changing or does it depress you? It is depressing. I mean, politics generally is quite depressing and you could say that, that they've got other things on their minds at the moment, but I think <laughs> housing is just such an important issue. I've been writing about it for 30 years and there just seems to have been gener- sort of decades of sort of mismanagement, sort of huge policies that have sort of gone awry. I mean, in the 80s, I, I covered the, the rise of housing action trusts in sort of neglected areas of Britain. And uh, you could see that then which way it was going, where it was going to be partially privatised and handed over from councils to housing associations and so on. And it does seem that most of the people who set the policy probably don't understand that, you know, social housing is for everybody and it shouldn't just be a sort of dumping ground for people who've got nowhere else to go. Thanks for joining us, Luke and Mark. And that's all for this week. Pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in this podcast, as well as more from Alex Massey, Nikki DaCosta and Laura Freeman. And we have a special offer for our podcast listeners. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator for just £12, plus a free John Lewis voucher worth £20 when you subscribe. Think about it, do the maths, and then go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher to get the deal. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. This Spectator podcast is brought to you in association with Merian Global Investors, proud sponsors of Shakespeare's Globe, together committed to providing the space to perform. For a chance to win one of 50 pairs of prize tickets to the Globe's summer season, visit mirianatthegloob.com. Competition terms and conditions apply.